Hey, Jamie. Hi, Bianca. What are we doing? We are recording a podcast. We are. This is If I Knew Then, Designing Prevention from Recovery. Amazing. Why would somebody make such a podcast? Because we're preventionists. And what exactly do preventionists do? Prevent drug use and misuse. Amazing. So what does that look like on a day-to-day? How do you prevent drug use and misuse? Well, I think there's a lot of different ways that we do it. We do. Uh, one That's of the true. biggest ways is that we go out in the community and we provide education and resources to anyone, anyone and everyone um, from young youth to adults. Absolutely. And I think another big part of our job is working with our community to change our surroundings in ways that make it easier to make healthy decisions about drugs and alcohol. Right. So I think one of the goals of our podcast is to help us narrow down what it is that people are struggling with, what it is that actually needs to be changed, and how are we going to do that? We're going to do that by talking to people who've lived it. Exactly. Right. Talk to people who've experienced addiction and learn from them, learn uh, what it was that got them in the situations they found themselves in and what it was that helped them recover from it and say hey you know what this isn't the life I want to live that's right so instead of just kind of guessing and approximating as to what our community and what our clients need we're learning from the expertise of people who have actually been there right so one thing we want to make really clear though is that we're not therapists we are not (laughs) we are not qualified to provide therapy to anyone we are preventionists Right, so that means that we 100% do not have those credentials (laughs) (laughs) Um, to help people work through their individual substance use struggle, but we do work with an amazing team who do have the credentials to do that. They do, and they're all amazing at their jobs. So what we can do is in the description of every episode, we are going to provide a hotline number that if you call it, you will be immediately put in contact with someone who can help you begin your journey to recovery. So that or that number will be in the description of every episode. So uh, what are we going to do today, though? Today, we get to interview Sean. So Sean is going to tell us about his past experiences with substances. We're going to talk about his journey through addiction to sobriety. Right. And then after the episode, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss uh, what Sean said, what his suggestions were to support prevention, as well of, as some of the common prevention themes and concepts that um, kind of show up throughout his interview. Absolutely. So I think we're ready to jump right into it. Let's go interview Sean. Let's do it. Thank you, Sean, for joining us today. I know I just introduced you as Sean, but you're going to get to introduce yourself a little bit more, okay? So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been in recovery, and where you're from. Okay. Um, Well, uh, my name is Sean. Uh, I have been in recovery now for 18 years, 11 11 months and 8 days. Um, I just looked that up today. Um, (laughs) Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, or 6,917 days, if that makes a difference. (laughs) And, um, I am from, uh, originally from the Orange County area. 
Awesome. Now I have to ask, do you have an app that counts your sober days or did you calculate that out? Um, there is an app. Um, you can go to uh, the NA Clean Time Calculator and it'll ask what your clean date is. Um, and you just put it in, hit calculate, and it'll give you all the information. It'll even show you like all the t key tags that you have. Um, it's That's a pretty so neat little app. That sounds amazing. I have to imagine it would feel so rewarding to see such large numbers behind your sobriety. That's so great. Absolutely. Okay, so you said that you grew up in the Orange County area. We're going to ask you a little bit about um, your formative years, specifically what you thought about substances or whether you even knew about substances in elementary school. Um, in elementary school, I mean, I, I would have to go back. I, I grew up in a um, pretty normal, uh, quote unquote, normal family. And um, the only thing I knew about drugs and alcohol at the time, um, everything's different for every uh, race, so on and so forth. So from what I knew, um, if you did drugs and alcohol, um, you were a strangely looking white guy um, with like uh, in dirty clothes um, that carried a bag around. Um, and it was usually alcohol. So that's what I was taught. If you did drugs or alcohol, um, you would end up like that guy, which um, hindsight, I guess that would be a homeless, somebody that was homeless or a transient. The brown paper bag, that's a symbol for <laughs> alcoholism. It, it absolutely, it absolutely is. And, you know, what was weird about it is I would see, you know, my dad did drink. Um, my parents were divorced and my dad did drink. And, um, you know, quite often um, he drove around with a brown paper bag, you know, but he wasn't homeless. So, you know, it, it I did have some conflicting thoughts, you know, from what my mom was telling me and what I saw from my dad. The whole uh, substance use, that was something that your mom did talk to you about at a young age in those elementary years. Was that kind of when she was setting these things up for you or? Um, it wasn't necessarily that she was setting them up. You know, just being a child, you're very inquisitive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would see people and I would be like, I would ask, Mom, what's wrong? You know, why is that guy like that? Or why is that lady like that? And um, she would turn and say, well, that's what happens when you drink alcohol. I think that's a lot of our first exposure is just yep. looking at the people on the street and that very, very stereotypical idea of what an addict looked like. Absolutely. So in addition to that, did you have any school curriculum in elementary school? Like I know a lot of schools do dare. Sometimes there's a health class. Did you have anything like that? Boy, you're going way back. Uh, <laughs> you got to remember. <laughs> I am, um, if there was anything, uh, I, I do vaguely recall, um, you know, like the D.A.R.E., um, the D.A.R.E. program. Sometimes we'd have like the police cars come by and um, I, if, if I'm not mistaken back then, I mean, the D.A.R.E. Uh, program was just really getting on its feet um, and you would also hear a little bit about MAD. Um, you know, back then, 
Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's going way back, um, you know, because mind you, you know, I just turned 50. <laughs> okay, so let's phrase it this way then. When did you remember first encountering substances in school, in elementary school, junior high, or high school? I would have to say um, it was uh, late junior high, um, high school. Um, you know, I would see um, some of the other kids kind of sneaking off. Uh, they had what back then was called like stoner's circle, um, <laughs> you know, where, you know, the, the bad kids would, would go and sit in the circle and um, you could smell them smoking weed. Um, I tried to stay away from it at the time because I was always afraid that I would end up homeless. And, you know, like what mom was telling me, um, I would end up homeless or um, dirty and, you know, um, that I wouldn't accomplish anything. So when did those views start to shift from something that should be avoided to something that maybe you were interested in trying? It was probably when um, I joined the military and, um, you know, I was 18 years old and we were allowed to drink in the military at 18. Um, it was okay. Um, as long as you're on base, you could, you could drink. Well, everybody that I was in the military with, you know, I, I started to realize that, well, look, that nothing's happening to them. You know, they drink and um, they're not turning into homeless people or anything. So um, I thought it would be okay. And back then I came across a, um, I was on a watch one night and I came across a vending machine that um, on the base that sold beer. Um, so I was able to um, get a beer and I drank it and nothing happened to me. And, you know, I was thinking my mom's been lying to me all these years. And so then I drank another one and I drank another one. And I, I, I was I was working as a like a guard at that time. And I was just drinking all these beers. Um, hindsight, I should have probably realized then that I was going to have a problem because I I wouldn't stop drinking it. And I actually attempted to break into the machine to get more out of it because I ran out of money. <laughs> Zero to 60 real fast there. Zero to 60. The vending machine didn't ask you for your license? No, no, no <laughs> license or anything like that. You know, I, I guess they figured if as long as you're 18, you're good to go on base. Uh, I want to ask just while it's on my mind really quickly. You said that you had conflicting emotions when it came to what your mom was telling you and what you were seeing in your dad. When did those conflicts start to happen for you? Like, when did you start noticing like, hey, my dad does this, but my mom says this. And what do I feel about it? What do I feel about it all? I was more of a, of a person that tend to listen to my mom a little bit more because, you know, that's who I was lived with at the time. Um, I had, I knew there was something not quite right. Um, you know, because like my dad started, he would smoke weed too. And 
when I would say, oh, hey, Dad, you're smoking those good-smelling cigarettes again. Now, this was in middle school. And he says, oh, yes, but let's not tell your mom about that. So, um, you know, there was there was little um, dark secrets, um, you know, and, you know, that happens. I guess that happens quite a bit. Um, and there was also, you know, I can remember some times when um, he actually got pulled over and he handed me things and he says, put this in your pocket and, you know, don't pull it out no matter what, you know, things like that. Times were a lot different back then. Uh, versus, you know, what they are now, though. I think the the whole secrecy part, though, is so prevalent still today when you have adults who are asking children to hold things or keep things away from other adults. It's really important to shed light on that a little bit to help youth understand if they're asking me to do this, it's probably because it's not something they should be doing or we should be doing. Absolutely. Yeah, if you ever hear that, um, come out of somebody's mouth. There's usually, um, yeah, there's usually a problem. I mean, with exceptions of like, oh, well, don't tell your mom what I bought her for Christmas. I mean, you know, things like that. Right. But, um, yeah, usually if somebody's saying uh, to keep something a secret, um, yeah, there's usually, um, a, there's usually something wrong, especially if it comes to drugs or alcohol or uh, various other things. Yes. Thanks for pointing that out, Bianca. That's definitely something that I think we need to hone in on is those fun secrets versus scary secrets, because that's yeah. not really something that we talk about in our curriculum. Right. So I think that that's something to expand on. Um, I want to kind of just expand on what Bianca just asked you, because you told us you had a quote unquote normal childhood, which, you know, <laughs> what does that even look like? But um, so was your father an alcoholic with the with the benefit of hindsight? Can you look back and say, you know, he was an alcoholic or well, how would you describe that? Looking back on it, um, it, it obviously, um, again, and, it, you know, it was one of those things that we didn't really talk about. It's those family secrets. Um, and one thing I absolutely love my mom for is she never talked bad about my dad. Um, she let me develop my own thoughts and opinions um, on things. But looking back, um, there was obviously some sort of problem with the alcohol. I mean, they ended up getting divorced. Um, there was quite a few times where I would see my dad really drunk. Um, but the weird thing about it was I also saw him function. Um, you know, he worked for uh, Northrop. Uh, which is an uh, Northrop Grumman or Lockheed, which is an aircraft company. So I did see him function um, at the same time. So, you know, that's where it got kind of conflicting, um, you know, for me, because I, I was such an alcoholic, I couldn't function on it. Um, but he could. And I never really back then understood why now, um, doing what I do and learning what I've learned, I've learned that there is a difference between, um, you know, somebody that's an addict or an alcoholic that does, you know, have a problem versus somebody that drinks but, um, you know, will not go out and do things that are wrong, such as get behind the wheel of a car um, you know, um, 
he wasn't a physically uh, a, aggressive person or anything like that. He drank, he got drunk, and um, but he would stay home a majority of the time. Um, there were times that he went out, and actually he put me behind the wheel of the car um, when I was about 13 years old to drive him home. Never driven in my life. And he says, we've got to get home. You need to be careful. It wasn't too far. It was about maybe a mile. But he, he put me behind the wheel of a car at 13. So, you know, things like that are wrong, you know, looking back at it. Um, but back then I was just like, oh, I'm helping dad out. So, you know, there was um, there was some weird uh, dynamics right there. It's so funny how those things are changed by, you know, the, the lens of understanding what's going on. Because I'm sure at 13, it felt so cool to be able to drive a car. Like, it's oh, so absolutely. grown up and fun. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask really quickly. I know you said that you, you listened more to your mom than your dad. And you mentioned that, you know, he smoked weed. He drank alcohol. Did your mom you drink at all or... Um, she was the type of person that every night um, after she was done with her uh, responsibilities, um, when she would relax at home, she would have a glass of wine, and that was it. I, I never saw my mom drunk. Um, I don't think I ever saw her drink more than a glass of wine, and sometimes she wouldn't even finish that. Yeah, I was just curious to see, you know, the difference in yeah. the parents sometimes was, you see different he, substances or none at all versus mm -hmm. one who uses yeah he was more of the type that would like if there was nothing to drink in the house he would even try to you know here have some beer yep he was that type of person mm -hmm. um you know and i can see now why um you know my mom did not want to be with him anymore and how old were you when they got divorced i was young um I was six, and then she remarried at nine when I was nine. And you lived primarily with your mom? Yes, yeah. And uh, we had, uh, he, I, I believe it was a court, uh, something was set up to where we would go see him every other week um, for the weekend. And typically when we went to go see him, it was almost like to make us work around this house, my brother and I, and, you know, most of the time my dad was drinking. Can I ask what your dad's views were or what his uh, perception of use was for you guys? Did he ever tell you guys anything about drinking in general, smoking in general, seeing as how he was using around you or drinking around you? Well, like I said before, I mean, he would, he would just tell us, you know, like not to tell our mom, um, but he never implied don't do this. He never told us don't do this or um, it was just the norm for him. Um, she was more of the role model, you know, that that would say, hey, you know, try not to do this. And, and she wouldn't ever just tell us not to, um, you know, and that, again, that's what I really loved about her. You know, she would make suggestions. And she would kind of let us, you know, determine what we were going to do. And um, it was almost a, a lead by example type thing for her. So I think I was just curious to, to see that because sometimes when you have someone who's 
uh, using in the home or drinking in the home, they might sway the perception a little bit say, as you got older, oh, this is okay, not so bad, or they don't have a view on it at all, they didn't talk to you about it at all, so I was just curious to see. Or they tell you, I do this, you know, don't do what I do, do mm -hmm. as I say, so I was yeah. just curious about that. Do you remember at one time we were, I, I, I want to say we were, um, he used to like to take us out. Um, he had a little motorcycle and he used to like to take us out to the desert and we would go shoot guns and ride the motorcycle and stuff like that. Well, one time we were driving and we were thirsty and we were in the middle of the desert and it wasn't like, um, it was like Death Valley area. And there, it's not like there was a 7-Eleven everywhere you went. Well, he had plenty of beer stocked up, but there was no like soda or anything for for me and he's like well you know and then the van broke down and he says oh well here just drink this you know and my mom's like what are you doing you know and i saw an argument between them when i was pretty young i i, I that was kind of vivid and that's those parental priorities right like you've got the cooler stocked with beer but god forbid we should have water absolutely right <laughs> especially in the desert yeah I, figured, I guess he figured at some point he was gonna go get some somewhere i don't know well, a nice cold one will quench your thirst right <laughs> I, I can tell you a good one about the um uh about santa claus and his beer as well too and it was one of the last christmases we had and see these are the type of things that you know you grow up remembering is um one morning we get up for christmas day and my dad said hey you know go grab me a beer out of the refrigerator and you know that's typical you know back then i don't even know maybe now when you're a kid you know a parent may say go grab me a beer and so i go to the refrigerator and i said well there's no beers dad and he says that damn santa claus drank all my beer and you know so i thought i yeah, I was little, and I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, Santa Claus just made my dad mad, you know. And so I had this image of Santa Claus being mean, and, um, you know, it made my dad act a certain way, you know. So, yeah, and then when I found out Santa wasn't real, and, oh, how old are the kids that we're dealing with? Sorry, you might want to edit that what? one. I don't know how old the kids I need a break. Are. I need a safe word here. <laughs> if you're older and I just blew it for you, I am so sorry. <laughs> Apology accepted. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, we'll put a hotline number for everybody that's just been dispelled of the Santa Claus notions, too. We'll make crisis, sure we <laughs> Crisis hotline number. Just, yeah. Flash it up so on the screen. <laughs> Oh man, okay. So I think we are ready to go forward to first use. So I was just gonna ask you to describe what your life looked like whenever you started drinking. So you mentioned that you were in the military, 18, you just discovered that beer was not gonna instantly turn you into a homeless person. Yes, um, that, was, that was the first use um, of beer. Um, and I mean, it only progressed from that point. Um, you know, once I did get out of a school and we started, um, I went, got aboard a ship and started traveling, um, doing West packs, um, as we went to various countries. I mean, that's all we did. Every port we went into, um, you know, we found the nearest bar and, um, you know, we started drinking and, 
I mean, it was at the time, I mean, you're, you're on board a ship with people that have been in for quite a while and you're, you're new. And I mean, they could really drink people under the table. And so you tried to keep up with them and, you know, it resulted in a lot of um, brownouts and blackouts. Um, it resulted in a lot of fighting, um, you know, because just you're in the military and it just seemed like that was the thing to do back then was to get drunk and fight. Okay, so that's going to answer a lot of our questions because access, it sounds like it was available everywhere. Social norms, everyone was doing it. But what about um, the impact that it had on your job? Were you still able to function? Did you notice responsibility slipping? Um, it, it got harder and harder to, you know, get up and go to muster in the morning. Um, you know, like I said, I, I would have, I'd be hung over. Um, I worked in the engine room, so we were kind of able to hide down there. Um, but, uh, you just, I did not feel like I could function properly. And, you know, we were working around a lot of equipment and being hung over. Um, it really got to be pretty dangerous. You highlighted that your dad was a functioning alcoholic. You never really noticed, you know, I guess I would assume blackouts or, you know, things like that with him. So how did it feel to be like, well, this isn't what happened with my dad. Why am I feeling this way? Was there ever uh, that question in your mind? Oh, still to, still to this day. And, you know, we're, I'm coming up on 19 years and, you know, I still to this day have thoughts when I see um, family members or we're at family functions, um, things like that, and they drink and they have a good time and they don't black out or they don't get violent. They don't go out and drive. They don't do that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I'll sit here and think to myself, how come I can't do I know why I can't do it, but, you know, the thought does still creep into your head. It's like, you know, I don't understand, you know, it, it's really strange that they can do that, but, you know, I can't. Um, I just happen to know where it'll lead for me. Um, and it's not always the same for everybody, um, but I do understand that not everybody is the same as well. So you mentioned that you were working with heavy equipment, that you were going to work hungover, that you really started to notice a dangerous situation that you were creating. Mm -hmm. Is is that when you started to realize that you had a problem and your behaviors needed to change? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no it, took, uh, it took many years um, to figure out that I had a problem. Um, it took uh, captain's mass. Um, it took, um, you know, coming back late, um, you know, from leave, um, you know, from shore leave and things like that. Um, it took going to jail. Um, it took going to prison. Um, it took a lot to, to realize that I had a problem. And as you were traveling down that road, were you able to acknowledge that each of those individual things were having to do with the alcohol or was it just a series of unfortunate events? It was a series of unfortunate events. Um, I always thought that society was the problem. It wasn't my drinking. So I thought other people had a problem. 
um, but it had nothing to do with my drinking at all. Um, and everything that I'm saying right now is, again, hindsight. Um, I can see it now clear as clear as could be. Um, but back then, you know, life was just happening and um, you couldn't connect the dots back then. You know, the dots would be there, but you just you couldn't draw the lines to form the picture. Is there anything that could have been done that would have helped you connect those dots? Is there any external force that could have impacted that? Uh, I, I think if they wouldn't, I kept getting like three passes, I guess you would say, um, you know, it's like, okay, you know, don't do that again. Or, um, you know, even when in the military, um, you know, when I, when I got in trouble, they said, okay, well, um, it, it's like you're, you're grounded, you're restricted to the ship for a couple days. I think if there would have been some maybe more legal consequences or things like that, maybe it would have helped me hit the bottom a little bit faster. Um, that, that's the only, the only thing I can think is, you know, we, we get a lot of free passes. Um, it's kind of dismissed. I do realize now society, um, well, and it's kind of crazy because society is actually trying to um, dismiss um, drugs and alcohol again a little bit more. I mean, what was a felony in the past? They've now, you know, now it's just like a slap on the wrist again. Um, do I believe that jails and things like that um, are what you should do for a, a, a person that's an alcoholic or addict? Not necessarily. But, you know, back then, um, I wish they would have tried to put me in some sort of treatment so I could have spoke with somebody that um, has been through it. And, you know, I, I maybe I would have been able to, like, hear something and listen to them. But, you know, I wasn't offered the opportunity um, way back then to um, listen to anybody else. I didn't know about Narcotics Anonymous. I didn't know about Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and, you know, back then, I'm not even, honestly, I don't even know if I would have tried it. Um, but I think if I would have been maybe kind of forced to, to um, go to something, um, at least I would have been there and heard about it. And, you know, then I could have made my decision from there. I'm glad, I can't say I'm glad, um, whatever happened to me in the past happened to me in the past and it shaped the person I, that I am today, um, which I, I'm happy with, you know, the person that I am today. And to go back and think, well, what would have happened back then? I, I have no idea, you know. Um, I don't know where I would have been or anything. Um, but I, I, at least I wish I would have had that opportunity to make a choice back then. I'm so glad that you acknowledge that, you know, everything you've gone through has turned you into this whole healthy, functioning person that you are today. That's such an awesome thing for people to look forward to in recovery. That's so amazing. Yeah. But our goal is just to make sure 
people who are struggling as you were struggling have all of the resources that can possibly be offered to them to hopefully shorten that period of discomfort. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what I'm saying. I mean, there was things, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, it's been around for years. Um, But I mean, just maybe over the past 20, 30 years, um, you know, they've really put out the, uh, um, the you know, uh, the public uh, service announcements, the PSAs and things like that. So they've brought it. They, they're at least given people the opportunity um, to access those resources. They're making it a little bit easier to. And there's a certain stigma that goes along with being an alcoholic or even having a mental health problem. You know, back then it's like um, there was a label that went so you you didn't want to be labeled as like an alcoholic or a drug addict or things like that where now um you know okay if it is what it is you know and here's the resources you know try take these resources you know check them out because you know the misery and the pain that goes along with drug and alcohol use is there it won't ever go away if you want to go back to it you can go back to it, but at least give these other um, uh, these other resources an opportunity, and you know, see if you like life a little bit better. Um, and that that's what I try to tell um, individuals, you know, all the time. At least give this a shot. If you like it, you like it, and stick with it. If you don't, the misery is always there too. You know, it's up to you. Make a choice. You can make your own choice. And I find, too, that it's much more difficult. Uh, well, it's difficult for a, a person to want to seek help, especially when they have that stigma attached. But a veteran on top of that, I feel like that's even more difficult. Mm-hmm. And then back then, I would say also that they weren't really concerned with mental health or well-being of soldiers. You know, you get in, you do what you got to do, you follow it. And they, I mean, it's like you said, it was kind of a free-for-all. You didn't even have to be of age. They're, they're not acknowledging that this isn't okay. They're telling you, just accept it. This is fine. This is the norm. It was. It was definitely the norm back then. Um, you know, and, it, and I think things are changing uh, nowadays. Did they have anything on base that you knew of or that you were aware of to help soldiers who might you know, say, hey, I think I have a problem or I might have a problem or I don't know if I have a problem. Can you help me? Um, I, I do remember one time um, they tried to send me to like, they tried to send me to something. Um, it was like, an, it was an all day thing and that was it. You know, you go, you got your eight hours or whatever it was and then you're off, you're off the hook. That a was, one and done. All you, yeah, a one and done. That was it. Um, where I think, um, you know, it would have been nice if there would have been more continued follow-up, um, you know, almost like an outpatient or, or something like that. Not something that you just do the one time you're done and don't worry about it anymore. It was it was almost like, um, what is it, like driving school, sort of? 
You know what I mean? You sit there for eight hours, you listen to oh, stop at the stop sign, don't speed. <laughs> it was like that. That's, that's exactly what it was like, you know. And then once you got it, you got your little certificate and you're on your way, you give it to the judge. And, you know, that's that's kind of what it was like back then. I'm not sure how it is now, and I'm sure um, it's changed. I love that you get your certificate and it's like, congrats, you're cured. Like, yes, so yeah, cool. basically. And then you celebrate with a drink after, right? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, we celebrated with a yeah a drink or we smoked a bowl or whatever we did. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about your journey to recovery. So things got a lot worse before they got better. What was the final straw? What made you decide to get clean? Um, it was... I had originally done a, I was sentenced to three years in prison. I did 22 months. I got out, um, saw a parole officer, um, started using again. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to do what I did before. Um, I'm going to, I have a master plan because, you know, I, I thought I was like real smart. So I had this master plan of, um, I knew I had to test with them on every Tuesday, so I could go and be the first one in line to test on Tuesday. And um, as, as soon as I was done, I could go use drugs or alcohol. And I would use for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And I would stop using Friday. I would clean up Saturday, Sunday, Monday, test on Tuesday, and start the cycle all over again. Well, that worked for a little while, for about six, seven months. And then I found that Friday turning into Saturday, Saturday turning into Sunday. Next thing you know, I was testing positive. Next thing you know, I was running from a parole officer. And next thing you know, I was in cuffs on my way back to do a violation. And when I got back to prison to do a, do a violation, I looked around and I thought to myself, what are you doing? And, you know, hearing people... Um, there was this thing called the hotel. It was like where people were staying. They're yelling down at the window at the people that were just coming back in that were in reception. Hey, I'm glad to see you back. You know, this and that. And I was thinking, oh my God, what, you know, what, what, what am I doing? And at that point in time, um, I decided, you know what? I am going to listen to whoever wants to speak to me. And I am going to go ahead and try everything that they asked me to try and like I just got through saying a few minutes ago um, what I like or what works and what keeps me clean I'm going to go ahead and keep that in my life what um, doesn't work um, I'm just going to kind of let that go and I built my recovery um, off of various I mean dozens and dozens of people um, you know telling me about what works for them and not only that, um, I had a lot to do with cleaning up the wreckage of my past. And um, I got really involved with Narcotics Anonymous. Um, I would go to, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days. Um, I got a sponsor. Um, you know, I worked the steps. And when you work the steps, there's a lot of stuff that starts to come up. And it's very important to have somebody that can help guide you through that, um, you know, because there's times where you, you know, you're, you're digging up all this junk from the past and you kind of want to use again. 
Um, but, you know, that's where it's important to have these supportive people there, um, you know, that keep you on the right track. Um, ultimately, you know, it is your choice, um, you know, of what you want to do. Um, but I started to see a better way of life. Um, I started to see that my family was more accepting of me. I started to see that I was able to keep a job. I started to see that um, I didn't have to worry about the police behind me, you know, when I'm driving. Um, I didn't have to be worried about that. I didn't have to be, you know, think about like how other people saw me anymore. I was just, you know, a regular member of society and I started to like the benefits of that. And then once the benefits started outweighing the quote unquote fun that I used to have when I was using or drinking, um, life really started to get better. You know, you just have to give it that chance to see the benefits of staying off of drugs and alcohol versus the benefits of what they did to help you cope with whatever situation you were going through in the past. I think that's really well said. Thank you for that. I do want to take a step back real quick because I think we might have missed a step. You said that during the week you were using drugs and alcohol. At this point, is it still alcohol and marijuana or were there other substances in there? Uh, methamphetamines as well. Okay. Um, yeah, the alcohol, I didn't like the way the alcohol would make me feel when I started to get real drunk. Um, so I would start to use methamphetamines um, to go from the down that I was feeling, um, you know, the depressant, which alcohol is, and I would use the stimulant to bring me back up. But again, hindsight, all, all that I was trying to do was get back to that normal feeling. Yeah. And that mm -hmm. normal feeling is, you know, chemicals in your brain of how you feel when you're not using substances. But, you know, here you are using one and it kind of, it's a depressant. And then you're using one to bring you up. And what you're really trying to do is get back to that feeling of, you know, of not having the substances. And now I, now I see that, you know, and now I see that not using anything is the way to go. Um, but I was trying to, I was, I was trying to mess with my brain with all these different chemicals, depressants and stimulants. It was, I mean, now to me, it's absolutely insane. But um, back then, it just seemed like it was the thing to do. You were just trying to find balance. I definitely was trying to find balance. And, you know, <clears throat> my daughter put it, and I have an adult daughter now. She's 20. She just, she's going to kill me. 28. Okay. And um, she put it to me best because I really ruined a, I didn't ruin it, um, but I had no relationship with her. And this was another thing, um, folks, with uh, drugs and alcohol is, you know, I had a daughter that suffered um, because her mom kept her from me just because of what I was, the drugs and alcohol that I was doing. So there was a good seven year period where I had no idea where she was, what, what she was doing, how she was growing, you know. Her first words, her first steps, I mean, you name it. I was not there for it. And when she was about age 11, um, she wrote me a letter. Her, I, I was finally being responsible. I was paying child support. I was doing things like that. And her, um, she had asked her mom, I want to see my daddy. And her mom says, okay, um, I think I know how to find him. So 
She contacted the child support people. Child support says, well, why don't you have her write a letter and we will send it to them because they didn't know what what kind of relationship or contact or if I even wanted to have contact with her. In this letter, it talked about how she just had her 11th birthday and she told her mom if she could um, give back all her presents, if she could just meet and see her daddy. And I read that letter and it just absolutely broke my heart. And at the end of it, I still have the letter. And, you know, at the end of it, it gave a phone number. So I called the number and it happened to be my ex's mom's. She talked to me for a little bit. I guess she had told her mom if he calls, you know, kind of feel him out to, you know, where he's at. And ever since that day, we've had a really good relationship. When she got home from school, I talked to her. And since then, we have just been, I mean, we have rekindled everything. But um, when I was in recovery one time, um, I was working at a residential home. And there was other addicts and, you know, things like that there. And she was talking to me and she says, um, one of my coworkers had laughed and my coworker sounded kind of like a hyena when she laughed. And she says, dad, she goes, who is that? And I, I told her who it was. I said, that's my coworker. And she goes, oh, she's all, she sounds like a crazy person. And I, I just kind of laughed. I said, she's not crazy. She's all, but don't you work at that place where the crazy people are? And mind you, she was about 11. And I said, no, Ashley. I said, I live at a, I work at a drug and alcohol rehab. And she goes, right. She goes, the crazy place. And I said, no. I said, it's not a crazy place. I said, people are trying to recover off of drugs and alcohol. And she says, yeah, but don't you have to be crazy to use drugs or alcohol? And, you know, things like that really have stuck with me. Um, you know, over the years, and I'm just like, oh my God, you know, the simplicity of a child, you know, telling you things like that, and, and you know, those those sort of things really stick with you, and you know, again, hindsight, looking back at it, you know, yeah, you know, you absolutely feel like you're crazy. I think it's really interesting that that's a thing that stuck with you so hard too, because one of the things that you said that really struck me was the first time you drank, you should have known it was a problem because you didn't want to stop. But to me, hearing that, how could you have possibly known it was a problem when the only thing you knew to look out for was becoming homeless and being that guy on the street? Like what you knew was a complication of drugs and alcohol was not what was going to happen to you instantly. So you didn't know to look out for that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, um, and like I said, you know, that was, it came from my mom. And, you know, when I look back, that's kind of, uh, you know, maybe she shouldn't have put it that way, you know, because here that's running through my brain. And since it's not happening, you know, poof, I did, I'm not turning into this person. Um, I guess, you know, it should be, it's okay to do it, you know, but um, ultimately that is, could be a long-term effect. Um, is, you know, mental health problems and, you know, drug and alcohol problems. Um, it, it is one of, you know, some of the things that could happen long term. Absolutely. And that's just the simplicity that we explain things to kids. in. I mean, that's you don't want to go into all of the scary details of what could happen. So that's the really cut and dried. That's what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I don't want to. That's one thing that we try not to do is try not to scare people. Um, you know, because 
yeah, that's just that's the wrong way to do it. They used to have public service announcements way back in the day of these commercials that were meant to <laughs> scare people, you know. And um, you know, hindsight again, um, that's probably not the right thing to do. Um, you know, it is important, I think, nowadays just to give as much information as possible so people can make the best decision possible. But it's really hard to make that decision when, you're, when your judgment is clouded. And I just want to say to anyone who hopefully will be listening to this podcast, one thing that really resonated with me was you saying that you were able to reconnect with your daughter. You know, it had been that many years. And a lot of people, I feel like, internally struggle with that to say this may not happen for me, this may not happen for them, but it is very, very possible for that to happen. And it's a lot more common than people believe. So when I heard you say that, I actually have a very similar story where my kids were separated from their dad for about six years due to substance use and abuse and stuff like that. And, you know, years later, it's like they ask themselves, why can't, you know, why doesn't he want to see me or or whatever it is but he was able to take that time which may have hurt them then you know but to really develop himself to become the father that he wanted to be for them which has been so beneficial now which is kind of sounds similar to what you were able to do so I feel like it's very important to say that those things are very possible it's important that your behaviors um, you know as you're rebuilding um, you try not to, people get tired of hearing about what you're going to do. You know, oh, I'm going to get a job. Oh, I'm going to go to rehab. Oh, I'm going to stop. Oh, I'm going to go to school and finish. Um, that doesn't carry a lot of weight, um, you know, with a lot of people because they hear it over and over and over and over again, you know, as, um, as they see you just kind of destroy your life. Um, let your behaviors do the speaking or, you know, talk for you. Um, eventually family and friends, children, uh, they're going to start asking you when they see you, um, acting and behaving differently. They're going to start saying, what's going on with you? You know, I, I, I noticed some good things happening, you know, what's different now? You know, so they will start asking down the road. Um, your, you know, when the, the behaviors, when your behaviors show something different. So it's more of action. You A- show me what you're, show me what you're doing. Don't tell me what you're going to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to go back to the introduction of methamphetamines into your life. We, you've shared with us your end goal of why the, why the meth was helping you. How did you transition from alcohol and marijuana use to meth? What did your life look like when you started using methamphetamines? Um, both the alcohol and the methamphetamines, um, I think I was doing them to try to fit in um, with people because I did always kind of feel growing up, um, I always kind of felt um Maybe like I didn't belong, um, you know, in a certain social circle or, you know, something like that. And in order to fit in, um, you know, the drugs or the alcohol kind of gave you that courage or the, um, you know, the ability to fit in. Oh, hey, it's, you know, I'm one of the guys, you know, when, when in actuality, you know, we are 
we are our own individual and it's not about fitting in it's it's okay to try to you know to want to be part of a you know society and a, a social circle you know things like that but you don't necessarily have to use to do it um and again i can say that now because it's easy for me to look back um and say that you know people are gonna like you for who you are okay um and you know not for necessarily for something that you're trying to be and how long had you been drinking before you started using meth how, so you started use you started drinking whenever you were 18 how far along that journey were you whenever meth was introduced three to four years um you know probably three to four years it was i mean it went the the progression of it went from alcohol um then from alcohol to marijuana um and then marijuana um yeah, I mean, I remember being stoned and, you know, a girl saying, oh, hey, you know, why don't we try this and go, you know, to this party or whatever. And, you know, actually it was cocaine um, just for a quick second. Um, and then when I tried the cocaine, um, somebody else suggested, well, that doesn't last very long. Why don't you try methamphetamine? It lasts a lot longer. Um, so I tried that and I was really hooked on uh, methamphetamines, but every time it was, you know, alcohol led right back. And that's when I said, you know, I know where alcohol will lead me and that's why I can't drink, you know, like my family does or, or whatever, because I know exactly where it's going to go. And it sounds like you were surrounded by people willing to teach you how to be a better addict and where to get oh, drugs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And was, were, were those friendships a result of your alcohol use or those people you met because you were smoking weed and drinking alcohol? Yeah, it was, yeah, they were, it was all, it was getting into a new circle of people that, you know, I thought, oh, well, that's what, where other people are. So I think I need to be there as well. When, I mean, I actually had friends that didn't use, but, you know, I wanted to like try to be part of both worlds. And, you know, then I ended up getting stuck in, you know, like what I would say the dark world, you know, I, I ended up getting stuck over there. You mentioned that you started to distance yourself from those types of people, pretty much people who are bringing some form of toxicity in your life. And you started um, swaying yourself more towards people who were telling you their stories of recovery and, you know, helping themselves or who were willing to help you. So how did you find the strength to say this is who I want to be around because this is who I want to be rather than slipping back, especially when you talked about how difficult it was having to go back and, and kind of relive your trauma mentally to prepare yourself to get through what you needed to get through. One of the suggestions um, that when I started going to meetings is you have to change everything. And so, I, I mean, I really took that to heart. And I started to look at all my quote-unquote friends and that weren't, I come to, they weren't even my friends. Um, you know, they were acquaintances. Um, I had to look and I had to distance myself completely from all those old people and make all new friends of people that had like interests as, as I did which was staying out of prison, getting a job, 
making money, um, you know, uh, uh, going to church, going to, you know, the, the kind of life that I kind of grew up, you know, when, when I was younger, there was a certain, and I keep going back to like my mom. One of the things I didn't mention is, um, that last time I was going to, um, on, on the violation, right before I got arrested, um, the day before I got arrested, I was running from a parole agent and I was hiding um, underneath a trailer from him. And I started to think about my mom. It's like, you know, you are 30 years old, 31 years old, and what do you have to show for your life is what I told myself. And I started thinking about my mom. I was like, you know, she had a, a job, a career. You know, she was married, a home, um, you know, bank accounts, um, you know, things like that. What do you have? What do you have to show for your life right now? And I had a duffel bag with a change of clothes in it, no money in my pocket. And I can see the feet of the parole agent that I was hiding from. That's it. I didn't have anything. And, you know, that's when I started to flip the pages and it's like, okay, I need to do something different. And I started looking at all these different things. And it started with changing all those toxic, toxic people that were in my life. Um, have I seen any of the toxic people um, from back then? Um, I've run into them at meetings before. Even now I'm in, in Kern County. Um, and a lot of my my running around stuff was in Orange County. I've been to meetings in Orange County, and I've seen some of them at meetings. Do I hang out with them? No, I'll talk to them and, you know, kind of get a feel for where they're at. Give them my phone number, you know, if they want to reach out. But I, I have the strength now to where I can do that. Early in my recovery, I could not do that at all. Um, I, I could not give them my number because, you know, who knows what was going to happen back early in my recovery. But now I do have that sort of strength. If they want help, I'll throw them a life vest. It's the importance of creating those boundaries and yes. learning what boundaries are. A lot of the times we don't realize what they are and what they're not. It's kind of all muddled together. Right. Yeah. And I, like I said, I've learned to throw people like a life vest or like that life ring. And, you know, I, I'm, I, I'll reach out, um, but I'm not going to go into the muck with them and try to pull them out. Um, but I will throw them the resources and things like that. And it's up to them whether they're going to grab it and come up on the shore with me. What's one resource that sticks out to you from the beginning of your recovery process that you were like, if it wasn't for this person or this resource, I wouldn't be where I'm at? Uh, it was it was actually um, a guy named Mike Smith. Um, he was the program director at the residential home I went to. I made a choice when I was coming out of um, on parole again, instead of going home, um, there was funding to go to a residential program. So it offered a little bit more structure. Um, I went there and there was this guy, Mike Smith, um, and I'm still in contact with him now. Um, he is one of my support people, I guess. Um, he lives in St. Louis, but I still contact him to this day. Um, he really sticks out. He was he was that one person that really sticks out. And then from there, I was introduced to like Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, 
you know, to me, um, there's supposed to be a difference between the two. Um, but to me, um, as long as they are practicing recovery and speaking about support and staying clean, staying sober, whatever the message is, it doesn't matter which room that I go to. And Mike Smith, what was it about him that was like, this guy's helping me out? Was it something that he said to you? Something he did for you? Was it just the way he carried himself, his persona? Like, what was it about Mike Smith? I, I think he's an absolute genius. <laughs> you know, he just the way he put things, the way he said things, uh, um, uh, he would give you those aha moments. Um, you know, um, he would put on the board. I was, I, I was sitting in a group one day and he just walks up to the, the dry erase board and he writes 99.1% and just stood there. And, you know, we kind of looked at him and he's, he looks at us and mind you, I'm in a room full of parolees at the time. And he says, does it, can anybody tell me what this number is? And he let us sit there and guess for 15, 20 minutes. And, you know, we couldn't get the number right. And he, and I, I raised my hand. I said, Mike, why don't you tell us what that number means? And he says 99.1% of the population of the state of California have absolutely nothing to do with parole or probation. And I raised my hand and I said, Mike, I think your number is, is bullshit. And, um, he says, well, why do you think that, Sean? I said, because everybody I know is on parole or probation. And he looked right me in the eye and he says, well, do you think you might be hanging out with the wrong people? And I said, damn. And, you know, I mean, there's little tidbits all through your recovery that you hang on to. And, I mean, it's like aha moments. It's like, wow. You know, I mean, it was just like brilliant. And so I, you know, right then and there, I really had to take a look at everybody I knew, you know, who do I want to know? Do I want to know all these people that are on parole or probation? Do I want to know all these people that are using, or do I want to know, you know, the one that's, you know, uh, uh, make that's successful, you know, that's making something with their life that's, you know, who do I, who do I want to know? And I was like, okay, all right, I'm going to listen to this guy. And I, he had some great stories, you know, some really great stories. Well, God bless you, Mike Smith, for being a brilliant savage. That's oh, amazing. Oh, he's awesome. <laughs> he was absolutely incredible. My best friend, James, I met him in recovery. And, um, I mean, to, to this day, you know, him and I are best friends. I was the best man in his wedding. Um, you know, he, him and I are super tight. You know, super tight. You can meet some great people. I love that transition into healthy, long-lasting friendships instead of friendships born out of using. That's such a powerful step. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we uh, we have you design your perfect world? No, I think we're good. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Of everything that you've shared, all of these experiences that have shaped your life and your substance use journey and recovery, is there one thing or even a couple of things that you can point to along the way that you can say, if I had had that, I would not have had to struggle like this? Something that we can give to today's youth to hopefully prevent them from going down this long road of addiction. 
it, it's really hard to say because we, as as youth, we think we know everything, um, <laughs> and you know that's that's part of the problem. Is we know everything and we're invincible. <laughs> yes, absolutely, um, but just I mean. If, if we could just put the, you know, let them know that there's resources out there. Um, give yourself a chance, you know, is, is what I have to say is, you know, at least give yourself the opportunity. Um, I really enjoy Narcotics Anonymous um, and Alcoholics Anonymous. I met some great people. Um, you know, I made some powerful, you know, relationships, and I found that I could have fun being in recovery like I thought I was having when I was using. Take a look at your actual use, okay? Okay, yeah, you're having fun. It feels good, but look at the other things that are going on as well. What kind of relationship problems are you having with your family? What kind of, um, you know, money, financial problems are you having? Um, you know, take a look at, are, are you having problems in school? You know, there's, there's all kinds of things that do absolutely do go along with it. So yeah, give yourself a chance. I think it's important to say that when we're teens, we really don't want to ask ourselves those questions. How am I doing? What are my relationships like? We like to deflect a lot mm -hmm. and we definitely like putting things on other people. Absolutely. So, that's some big advice there. Mm -hmm. Actually think about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> when we see that with the teens we work with too, we'll give presentations on the dangers of marijuana use and we'll have kids say, well, that, you know, I've been using for however long and that hasn't happened to me. You're lying. And it's like, well, look at what's going on in your life. Are you going to tell me that you're not getting in trouble at school? No. Are you going to tell me that your parents are fine with you using? No. So, I mean, just because you haven't reached the worst case scenario yet does not mean that you are not suffering negative impacts. And the, you know, one of the hardest things um, that I'm seeing now, like, is being a counselor. Um, you know, I came from pretty whatever normal family, maybe, um, you know, for the most part, you know, successful parents that were successful, um, you know, that both worked, you know, 30 something years with a, with a company, they retired, they, you know, I mean, that are very successful. The hard part um, with a lot of the youths now is that um, you know you don't you don't see a whole lot of that. It's you know a lot of times um, you know the parents were addicts, and you know that's all you know is like okay you know so and so's yelling. So how do you deal with that? You drink or use? You know or I've got a problem. What do you do? You drink or use? Oh, we're having a party. What do you do? You drink or use to enhance it? You know um, you see that over and over and over again and we are definitely products of our environment you know and at some point in time um i've uh, you've got to um you know is that what you want it's, it's time to it's break the cycle you know we can break the cycle you know so um our kids don't have to see it i praise my daughter's mom for keeping her from me 
I'm glad she did not expose my daughter to what was going on. I'm sad that we didn't have that relationship. Okay, that uh, that saddens me. However, at the same time, I'm glad that she kept her from me, so my daughter didn't have to see it. Um, and she, her mom, like my mom, she didn't say anything bad about me. She let my daughter, you know, if, if my daughter wants to ask me, I told my daughter at one point in time, if you want to ask me anything, go ahead and ask me. And she's like, well, I don't want you to have to relive that. And early in my recovery, yeah, I would have probably relived some of that. Nowadays, I, you know, I'm a little bit stronger and she's not afraid to ask me things nowadays. Um, but, you know, like, you know, that cycle um, with her mom's help, you know, uh, we were, I, I was able to kind of help make sure that my daughter didn't go through this as well. And, you know, and I've got kids now and the, uh, my kids now don't, they have no idea, absolutely no idea of what's going on. Um, my, I have a niece that I really, um, she was born right as I was coming up on one year clean, she was born. And I made a, a promise to myself that she would never see an uncle um, that used drugs or alcohol. Definitely not going to let my kids, um, you know, I've, I've got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old right now, and they're not going to, they, they will never see it. That's definitely a step towards breaking all of those generational curses, for sure. Yes. I really appreciate you coming on here and telling us your experience and just being so open with us. I, I yeah. know I've learned a lot from, from this episode. Sure. You know, go to, um, for anybody out there, um, they have great NA meetings and things like that. And they're doing a lot of stuff virtually right now where they have speakers from all over the United States. Um, you know, sometimes at these speaker jams and conventions and you know, things like that. And just listening to other people's stories, um, you know, you can get so much out of them. I love speaker meetings um, where, you know, you have like a 15-minute speaker or and a 30- or 45-minute speaker um, because some of these things are just absolutely wonderful what they have to say. And listen to the message of hope, not what not what was good and, you know, why they were doing it and stuff like that back then listen to where they where they came from um and what they're doing to better themselves listen to that message when you go all right thank you so so much sean sure. it's been a pleasure speaking with you okay all right you have a great rest of your day all right you too thank you <laughs> Bye. bye, bye.